Thank you, James, for sharing your testimony. Kill the AC. Now, now I understand why he did not share any embarrassing stories of me. He knew that I would go right after him. <laughs> yeah, I always uh, joke around that James was my uh, practice bride. You know, whoever roommates you guys have right now, you know, don't see them as just you know roommates that are hard to live with. You know, people who have different you know habits that irk you. You know, see them as your practice bride, practice husband, right? And and learn to love them, learn to love them because. Uh, James was uh, uh, one of my roommates right before I got married. And uh, now that when I enter marriage, I, I saw how difficult marriage could be, you know. I knew that I could do it because I had already lived with James. And I was like, James prepared the way for me. No. <laughs> uh, James has uh, some some pretty funny a crazy story. So if you're a brother and you want you want to hear some of his testimony, you can go ask. But uh, some some of that stuff, you know, you know, you should you should know him before you really hear that because that's pretty crazy. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna start my message today. Um, but before I start my message, I want to share a little analogy. It's an analogy I heard from Rick Warren and also Joe Olstein. Uh, it's about the bamboo tree. One thing that a lot of people don't know about the bamboo tree, although it's very Asian and everything, right? one thing about the bamboo tree is when you plant a bamboo tree and you tend to it and you water it and you dig up the ground around it, for the first four years, no matter how much you tend to it, you don't see anything. Can you imagine tending to a tree that for four years... You don't even see anything coming out of the ground. But that's, that's the way it is for the bamboo tree. But the crazy thing is, on the fifth year, the bamboo tree has been known to... Uh, because during those first four years, the root systems of the bamboo tree are kind of branching out in all directions. But on that fifth year, the bamboo tree has been known to grow up to three feet, one meter in 24 hours. And up to... 80 feet tall in one year. That's 24 meters tall in one year. Now, I wish I can grow like a fraction of that <laughs> for the next five years. If I can just grow a little more height. But anyway, bamboo trees, when they are ready, when they enter that fifth year, they just shoot up. Can you imagine watching a tree grow three feet in 24 hours? Well, I want to share that since 2009, when we established the ministry here as New Philadelphia Church, God has been establishing the vision of the house, the prayer movement of the house, the leadership covenant, the membership covenant, the spirit of sonship. God has also uh, used that time to establish our core leaders and our core values, our non-negotiables. God's been really shaping our identity. And this is what I realized last night. Next month in April, New Philly is not only going to celebrate our four-year anniversary, but we are going to enter our fifth year. I don't know about you, but I believe that God has been establishing our roots down deep, laying our foundation wide so that he can start to now, we can start to build upwards. I believe that as we enter our fifth year, 
God is going to accelerate our growth. He's going to inspire us with great creativity. And we're going to see the church grow beyond progression. Just as Pastor Benjamin has been prophesying. So that's exciting. Everybody say fifth year. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I believe that's the word for our church at this hour. Because there's different ways that Satan is attacking our house right now. Where it was real good for the last three, four years. It's been amazing. We have ups and downs as well, but it's been amazing. But right now, key people... Uh, committed people are getting attacked, and I believe Satan is doing that because this is last-ditch effort before we enter our fifth year. Satan knows that his resistance against this house has been futile, and he's just trying to pick off some people before we enter our fifth year. But the word for you is Galatians 6, 9. Do not be wary in doing good, because at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. New Philly, we're going to reap a mighty harvest. Amen. I want to call all of the leaders in the house at three camp, all our three campuses. Renew your commitment to our prayer movement. I said this this morning at our Sunday Swim prayer meeting. I'm going to say it again. If you were a leader and you were not at Sunday Swim this morning, I want you to stand up and hang your head in shame right now. I'm playing. <clears throat> now I'm just playing. But uh, I want, whether you were there or whether you weren't, I want to ask all the leaders Renew your commitment to the prayer movement of this house. Prayer is the engine that drives our church forward. We're moving forward. And we want the leadership of this house to, be, to, be, to have the heart and to have the vision for where we're going. We don't want you to just hitch on like a bandwagon rider. Just, just hopping on whatever they want. You know, one thing I hate as an Eagles fan, as a uh, as an American football fan, I hate bandwagon fans. You know, what I'm you know that term in America, bandwagon? You know what that means? Bandwagon means that, let's say the Philadelphia Eagles are doing real well, right? Throughout the season, right, they don't, these bandwagon fans, they don't watch a single game. They don't tune into any of the news. They don't know which of the key players were uh, drafted during the uh, NFL draft. They don't know none of that. But the moment the Eagles are like at the semifinals to the Super Bowl, they, they just, oh, I'm a big fan. They start buying Eagles paraphernalia and saying, I was a fan from all along. That's a bandwagon fan. That's a freeloader. <laughs> and you know what? We don't want leaders at our church that are like that. We want you to be in it from the beginning. We want you to be in it through the thick and the thin. That means you come out and you pray every single week, whether the church is going through something difficult or we're celebrating something amazing. I want you to stick with us through the thick and thin. That's what it means to be a leader of this house. So all the leaders in the house. We got uh, over 120 people here at Hillside that are leaders. All right. Come out and pray. Sunday swim every single week. Every single week. Come out and pray. Renew your heart's commitment. All right. Let me get into my message. I want you to look up Deuteronomy chapter 23. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 23. If you're ready to hear the word of the Lord, say, I'm ready. I'm ready. Deuteronomy 23, look at verse 21 to 23. 
I'm going to read that out loud. Just follow along and read the ESV. Verse 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you. And you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Okay, this verse passage here is talking about making vows unto God. If you read through the Old Testament, there are a lot of Bible characters. They make vows unto God. Some people, they made foolish vows. One dude in the book of Judges, he was like, whoever comes through the gate, because he was celebrating a big uh, military victory, whoever comes through the gate of the city when I, when I return home, I'm going to sacrifice that thing onto the Lord. And it ended up having to be his daughter. Nasty, right? Kind of a sick story, but there's different interpreters that interpret it different ways. So it doesn't necessarily mean he cut her up and killed her, although it doesn't actually eliminate that interpretation. Anyway, I mean, that's a digression. And a lot of people in the Bible, they make vows to the Lord. And this is what the Lord says about these vows. You shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord will surely require it of you. And if you fail to keep those vows, you're going to be guilty of sin. And it actually says here, if you refrain from vowing, making vows, promises, commitments, you will not be guilty of sin. So it sounds like the message here is, you better be real careful. Don't make hasty vows onto the Lord. Because when you make those vows, God's going to require it, of it, uh, require it of you. All right. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Let's see what Jesus says about vows. Everybody say vow. vow. Everybody say promise. promise. Commitment. Commitment. All right. We're just kind of all-encompassing. Though all those different things. They're sim- simply talking about the same thing. All right. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. Let's see what Jesus has to say about vows and oaths. Look at verse 33. Matthew five thirty-three through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil or the evil one. Okay. What is Jesus saying here? Because in Deuteronomy 23, it sounded like God saying, when you make your vows to the Lord, you better keep them. Or you will be guilty of sin. It's better for you to not make a vow at all than for you to be guilty of sin. Right? That's what Deuteronomy 23 says. And now Matthew chapter 5, it seems like Jesus is like, don't make any vows at all. Because he says, do not make, do not take an oath at all. 
either by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by your head. Do not take a vow, promise, or oath. That's what it sounds like, right? So what are we, what's going on here? Is Jesus just simply saying, just don't make any commitments? If, if that, that doesn't make any sense because of his last line. He says, verse 37, in the NIV it says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why would Jesus say this last line if he's warning us just to avoid oaths altogether? I'm going somewhere. Listen. If you don't hear this tension, you're not going to know the solution that I'm about to present. Okay, do you see the tension that we're in? Okay. I believe that Jesus is not saying avoid promises, avoid commitments, avoid vows, because you know what? You know your knucklehead itself can't keep them promises anyway. Just don't, uh, just avoid it altogether. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying, and I believe the NIV here, the interpretation of the NIV actually helps. The NIV says, I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem. What Jesus is saying is do not swear an oath. Because in the Old Testament, the common practice was people will say, essentially, I swear to God. I swear by heaven that I will fulfill this promise of this debt being repaid. I promise to, to pay back this mortgage. I swear by heaven that I will pay back this mortgage. You know, and people will take these types of oaths in the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying as he arrives on the scene is, stop that. You know, when I was growing up, you know what I hear my uh, non-Christian friends saying all the time? You know, they'd be like, yo, I saw this crazy thing on TV the other day. Man, shut up, man. You didn't see nothing on TV. And my friends will always say, I swear to God. I swear to God. I swear to, I swear to God. You know, and they will always be swearing to God. I'd be like, what? Why do they do this? <laughs> I never learned that practice like, you know, uh, when I was uh, until six years old in Korea. I grew up until I was six here in Korea and I moved to America. So I didn't know like this culture of swearing all the time. But all my friends would always be like, I swear to God, I swear on my mother's grave. You don't ever hear that one? Come on, you made, that, you made those vows sometimes. <laughs> You know, it's pretty much trying to secure and assure a person of your commitment and promise by doing it on the basis of somebody else or something else. Heaven, earth, by God's name. You know, as people would say, as surely as the Lord lives in the Old Testament, I will not delay in getting you your water. As surely as the Lord lives, I will give my daughter to you in marriage. You know, and people would try to give you an assurance by um, appealing to heaven, earth, Jerusalem, God, whatever, or by your own head. You know, and what Jesus is saying is, stop that. You know, all of that. That's baloney. That's what Jesus is saying. Because you can't even do nothing to heaven. You can't even turn the hair, one hair on your head, white or black. So you need to stop swearing. Uh, when you make your oaths, when you make your vows, when you make your promises, stop swearing to God, stop swearing to heaven, stop swearing. Just say yes or say no. Anything more than that is coming from the devil himself. Because you know what happens? When you swear on your mother's grave, if you, if you really did that on your mother's grave, right, and your mother's still alive... And you break that promise. Guess what? Now you feel all this guilt. 
And actually, it's not even healthy for you to keep that particular promise because it was actually one that you shouldn't have even made in the first place. But since you made it on your mother's grave, you have this obligation and guilt to try to fulfill it. And what Jesus is saying is all that is from the devil. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. So I believe what Jesus is saying here is do not swear when you make your promises. Just say yes. Okay, today I'm going to talk about commitment. Everybody say commitment. I want to talk about commitment because we live in a generation that is afraid of commitment. They have a fear of commitment. Other than the Midwest where people are getting married when they're 19 and 20, the rest of the country, they're getting married when they're 35, 36. That's the norm in New York City. You get married at 29 and people are like, what are you doing? Why are you throwing away your life? What's the rush? You know? In the Midwest, you're 29. They're like, something wrong with you. Why ain't you married yet? You know what I mean? Anyway, we live in a generation that is afraid of commitment. There's a fear of it. So they avoid it at all costs, including the marriage commitment. So they cohabitate. Why? Because cohabitation doesn't have those expectations of promises and commitments. It's not a permanent thing. You can try before you buy. You can still get a refund. We live in a generation that is afraid of commitment. The only commitment that they are familiar with is when they commit sin. We're in a generation that's afraid of commitment. And, and what's happening is as God is pouring out his spirit and he's raising up strong leaders to govern the church, to lead the church, to pastor the church. Young people are being awakened to make commitments again. They're like, hey, yeah, this is, this is awesome. I need, to, I need to just make a commitment. You know, we got a whole promise keepers movement in America, right? What is that about? Promise keepers is a, is a movement led by big muscular men. And they come and they have these huge conferences where they gather the men because men in America, they're divorcing left and right. Or they're, they're, they're impregnating their girlfriend and then they ditch out. They don't even pay child support. And these are not just non-believers. These are also believers. And so the Promise Keepers movement is to hold these big conferences where they get these big muscular men that look manly, right? Because you got to get the manly men to, to say, come on, be a man. You know, you, you can't get a skinny guy up here and be like, be a man, you know. You, it's got to be somebody with some muscle, you know. You need to keep your promises. It's, a, it's about strengthening the men of God in America to keep their promises. Why? Because we have a generation that's not only afraid, but a generation that's, been, that's had a fear of commitment. Once they make commitment, a lot of them don't know how to keep their commitment. That's what I want to talk about today. Be a commitment keeper. I want to talk about being a commitment keeper. Let me talk about some commitment keepers in the Bible. Jacob. Now, Jacob was a manipulative guy. He was a sly guy. He was the deceiver, the heel grabber. Jacob had a reputation for being manipulative and getting his way. But the irony is, when Jacob fell in love with this beautiful girl named Rachel, right? He became vulnerable to manipulation himself. Because Rachel's father, Laban, was a manipulator himself. 
He liked to show things off as if they were innocent, as if they were white and pure. But his actual intentions are very greedy and very manipulative. So Laban, you know, in one sense, Jacob met his match in Laban. But one thing that I want to draw out from this narrative is that Jacob was a promise keeper. He was a commitment keeper. Why? Because when he fell in love with Rachel, he was like, oh, man, I need to have her as my wife. You know? Laban said, all right. You know, and, and, the, and the thing was, Jacob's father, Isaac, got a wife for himself, Rebekah, without having to work a single day of his life. He just sent, he didn't even go himself. He just sent his servant. And the servant went with camels and gold earrings and whatever. And brought back Rebecca to be, to be married to Isaac. Well, in a similar way, Jacob, as a man of the covenant, he had access to that same thing. He could have gone and just gotten a wife for himself and left. But because he didn't recognize that he's a man of covenant, because he thought he had to strive to get everything, he didn't, he didn't think he was blessed by God. He went and he negotiated a deal that God didn't ordain. So he brings up this, well, what if I work for seven years for your daughter Rachel's hand in marriage? And Laban's like, oh, sucker. All right. I can get some free labor from this guy. All right, fine. You can work seven years. I'll give you my, my daughter Rachel. And, 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 and Jacob was, all right. So he starts working those seven years. And the Bible says that those seven years were short to him because of his love for Rachel. Oh, come on. Come on, you knew Rachel was hot. She was fine. Right? Because he was working seven years and it didn't feel like seven years to him. At the end of seven years, Jacob says, give me my wife. I kept my commitment. I kept my promise. And Laban says, all right, here's your wife. And I don't know if they got him drunk or something. If they blindfolded him. I don't know what the ceremony was like back then, but... He woke up in the morning after sleeping with his wife, wakes up and finds out that it's not Rachel. It's, it's Rachel's older sister, Leah. And the Bible says Leah had weak eyes, which is a nice way of saying she wasn't so pretty. Okay. And now, now, now I know y'all saying, oh, and that's actually the heart of God because the Messiah actually comes to the line of Leah. If you guys didn't know, God had actually more compassion on Leah and gave Leah child after child, son after son after son after son after son. She has so many children. <laughs> anyway, anyway. So Jacob wakes up and he goes, you, you didn't keep your promise. I kept my commitment. You didn't keep your commitment. How could you deceive me? And Laban's like, oh, hold on, wait. Check this out. It ain't my fault. It is the custom of our people. To have the older daughter marry first. But check this out. Man, it's a real easy solution. You give me another seven years, I'll give you the other daughter too. You can marry both of them. And Jacob's like, what are you, are you crazy? Where are you crazy? Oh, there's Rachel. Oh. <laughs> All right, consider it done. And he just committed another seven years. And, and, and praise the Lord that Laban allowed him to have a kind of a, a kind of a, Lay a, a down payment kind of, kind of so that uh, he didn't have to wait the seven years, the second seven years. He actually got Rachel uh, shortly thereafter the promise was made. But anyway, the, the, the point of the story is Jacob is a promise 
keeper. He's a commitment keeper. Even when he was manipulated, he kept to the commitment that he had made. I'll tell you about another commitment keeper, Ruth. The Bible says Ruth was a Moabite. In other words, Ruth was a pagan. Ruth was an idolater. Ruth did not know the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. She was a foreigner. But what happened was when Naomi's family went because of some very difficult times in Israel, they went to the foreign area. Naomi's sons married Moabite women. One of them was Ruth. But both of her sons died, leaving Ruth and uh, the other son's wife. Both of them were widowed. And then on top of that, Naomi's husband died. And so Naomi started to grieve before God and then told her daughters-in-law, the two daughters-in-law, who now don't have any husbands either, and she doesn't have a husband, y'all don't have husbands. She said to those two girls, she said, why don't y'all just go home and find husbands among your own people? Right? And the two daughters grabbed onto Naomi and said, no, please don't send us away. Please don't send us away. And so Ruth is like, man, get off of me. This is my own version, okay? (laughs) Naomi said, look, man, even if I I had a child today, what, are you going to wait for that son to grow up so you can marry him? That's nasty. (laughs) Go on back to your own people. You know what happened? The girl said, one, the, one of the daughters and all said, all right, peace out then. She just walked away. <laughs> but Ruth said, no, I make a commitment to you and to your God. Your God will be my God. I do, do not tell me to leave you. It's hurting my feelings. Please stop that. <laughs> I'm committed to you. And you know what? Naomi finally obliged and took her with her back to uh, Bethlehem. And when they got to that town, all right, Ruth had to go out to the field and do what most widows did. They went out to the field and picked up the leftovers that the harvesters would leave behind. And they were required uh, by law to actually uh, uh, not go back and pick up the leftovers. If they, if they dropped anything, God said, do not pick it up. And that was to supply food for the orphan and the widow. So it was costly for Ruth to keep this promise, to keep this commitment to take care of her mother-in-law. But you know what? Ruth kept her commitment. And the amazing story is, amazing part of the story is that she went from working the field to owning the field. Because Boaz, the owner of the field, who was a little bit older, was like, man, I've heard about your reputation. You're not even a Hebrew. You don't even know the God of Israel. But what you have done is a reflection of the heart of God. It's a reflection of the hesed. It's a Hebrew word for loving kindness, everlasting love, agape love. This is, you, you've shown the hesed of God to this whole town. I've heard about your reputation. And so he had favor on her. Why did he have favor on her? Because Ruth was a commitment keeper. She was a commitment keeper. Now, the grace of God was working inside of her heart and everything. But that does not take away from the fact that Ruth was a commitment keeper. And eventually, Boaz was like, you know what? I want to make a commitment to you, girl. (laughs) 
You know, if, if some of y'all were Ruth, if Naomi was like, man, get off me, you know, what am I going to bear a son to you and you're going to wait for him to grow up and marry him? That's nasty. Get away from me. You have been like, oh, you're hurting my feelings, mother-in-law. I never liked you anyway. <laughs> you have been like, peace out. You would have been like that first daughter-in-law. You would have been peaced out with the quickness. You know why? Because many of you don't know how to keep a commitment. When you make a commitment to a person and that person insults you, guess what? You're like, peace out then. Forget you. I made a commitment to be at this company. I made a commitment to serve this church. But you know what? The pastor of that church just insulted me. You know what? All deals done. All, all the cars are, are off the table. I'm, is that, I'm using like some weird metaphors right now. <laughs> Making stuff up. Pretty much you peace out. Especially when you get insulted or personally injured. But imagine what Ruth had to endure with Naomi. I mean, Naomi wasn't nice about it either. When she came back to her hometown, she was like, don't call me Naomi, just call me Mara. <laughs> Which means bitter. God has taken away my, my pleasantness and replaced it with bitterness. God has caused this bitterness upon my life. You know what I mean? She wasn't nice. But Ruth was a commitment keeper. Let me tell you about another person. Um, David and Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 2, David is about to die. And he installs Solomon, his son, as the new king over Israel. And David says to Solomon, I want you to turn there real quick. If you, if you know where your Bible is. 1 Kings chapter 2. I don't want to show you this because sometimes commitments you make are very difficult to keep. But a real commitment keeper is going to go through with it, even when it hurts, even when it's inconvenient. Look at 1 Kings chapter 2. If you look at verse 2 to 6, David says to Solomon, I am about to go the way of all the earth. That means I'm about to die. Be strong and show yourself a man. Be a man. Do the right thing, Solomon. And then it says, keep charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. In other words, obey the word of God. Keep your commitment to obey the word of God, Solomon. If you want to be a prosperous leader, you got to keep your commitment to obey the word of God. That's what he says. And then move on. Look at this. Look at verse five. Moreover. You also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me. How he dealt with the two commanders of the army of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jephthah, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. In other words, this guy Joab was the commander of David's army. But even as the commander of David's army, Joab did some wicked things. Joab killed Abner, the commander of Saul's army. He killed and murdered him in a time of peace to avenge the blood of his uh, brothers. I think it was his brothers. Anyway, he killed him in a time of peace for blood that was shed. His brothers died in a time of war. But he killed Joab in a time of peace. So you know what David's essentially saying? He says, look, I'm about to die. Here's my hit list. See this? I made a commitment to God. 
to carry out his vengeance. God has appointed me to carry Now, don't do this if, you, if God hasn't ordained you. Okay? Now, obviously, he doesn't do this kind of stuff on this side of the cross. But back then, he did. So, look, God wants to avenge the blood that was shed by Abner, this righteous man. You are to go and you are to, you are to wipe out Joab. You are to go take him out, whack him, kill him, put a hit out on, on him. And you know what Solomon does? Look at, um, if you look, read from verse 28 to 33. Joab hears about the hit that's put on his head. He goes to the altar and holds to the horns of the altar. Now, when you hold to the horns of the altar, you're supposed to receive refuge. Right? And so he's there. He's crying. He's like, please don't kill me. Look what I've done for the, the army of Israel. Look what all the accomplishments I've made. But Solomon says to Benaniah, ben, ben, uh, Benaniah, he says, go and strike him dead. Do not let his head go down in peace. And so he goes up to him and says, look, man, you got to get your hands off the altar because I need to kill you. And Joab says, I'm not going to let go. Never. So he comes out to Solomon and says, what should I do? And Solomon says, I'm going to keep my commitments that I made to my father, David. You go back and you strike him dead. So what happens? Look at verse uh, 34. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and put him to death. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. Solomon was a commitment keeper, even when it was inconvenient, even when it was pricey. Um. Let me give you another commitment keeper. Uh, you know, uh, go to Acts chapter 15. This is a real good one. And I'm going to give you my interpretation on this very disputed passage. Acts chapter 15. Read with me from verse 36 to 41. And if you read along, it's going to be fun. But if you don't have a Bible, just listen up. Check this out. Acts 15 verse 36 to 41. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn. In other translations, it says one who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. And there rose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with them and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose silence and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. A lot of people debate here, what was the right thing to do? Was Paul being a little bit rigid and stubborn by saying, you know what, man, this guy John Mark... You know, he was down. He was down with it from the beginning. But you know, when we went to Pamphylia and he deserted us, look, man, I, I can't afford that no more. You know what? I can't take him. Yeah, we don't know. We can't, we don't know. We can't predict what he's going to do. I'm not going to take him. And Barnabas was like, look, how could you say that, Saul? You used to be a murderer of Christians. <laughs> and I vouch for you in front of the apostles. Can you not show a little grace to this guy? And Paul's like, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Look, check this out. We're not taking him. (laughs) 
And a lot of uh, different people will interpret that differently and say, no, Barnabas was in the right because he was willing to show the grace of God. Other people were like, no, Paul was acting in wisdom because John Mark wasn't ready for that voyage. What is my interpretation? I'll tell you my interpretation. Paul was right. That's what I think. Okay? Now, I think Barnabas was right also in the sense that he was willing to show grace. But I think the wise move at that time was not to take John Mark. You know why? Because John Mark, he dissed them. He committed to something and then he broke that commitment. And Paul knew that the work that he was doing of church planning, he wasn't playing around. He needed people that could keep their promises. And he said, you know what? John Mark broke it. So look, maybe later on we can restore him, whatever. But right now, look, he's on probation. Right now, he's on restoration. Right now, it ain't the time to take him on a mission trip. It ain't the time to take him and put him on the church plant team. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? So yeah, you know, Barnabas is, you know, he's a real nice guy. And, you know, actually in Colossians, some people say in Colossians chapter 4, it shows that actually Barnabas and John Mark were cousins. Some people think the Mark that's being talked about in Colossians is actually John Mark. So yeah, I mean, Barnabas, you know, he's his family. He's like, man, this is my cousin, man. How can you diss my cousin? You can't take, I got to take my cousin with me. And Paul's like, look, check this out. We need people that can keep their commitments. And right now, John Mark, he's not ready. I believe Paul, what he did was smart. I believe what he did was wise. And I believe it was the right call. Because in fact, later on, John Mark does get restored. And he helps out Paul in a lot of ways. In fact, when Paul's about to die, he's in prison. John Mark is one of the few guys that sticks by his side. But at that time, he wasn't a commitment keeper. He was a commitment breaker. And so he wasn't wise yet to take him along. Let me talk about some commitment breakers in the Bible. King Saul was a commitment breaker. One of the first assignments that God gave to Saul was to go out to war against the Amalekites and to completely wipe them out. Everybody say Amalekites. Actually, you should never say Amalekites. You know why? Because God promised on oath. In Deuteronomy 25, he said, remember what the Amalekites did to you when you were coming up out of Egypt. How they picked you guys off. How they, they targeted all the ones that were lagging behind. The weak ones. They were wicked in how they attacked you. And so it says in Deuteronomy 25, verse 19, when the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess his inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget do not forget what? Do not forget to forget them. Completely wipe out this people group. Genocide. Because of the wickedness that they've done. I have made up my mind. That's crazy. That's crazy. And so today I believe that there, there are no Amalekites living. Uh, actually, I don't know. I don't, I'm not a, I haven't studied that myself. Anyway, uh, if, if it was executed the way God said he would. There should be no Malachites today. There are none. Um, but the thing was, God wanted to execute this judgment that he spoke in Deuteronomy 25. He was trying to execute it through King Saul. After King Saul becomes installed as king, God commands him, go and completely wipe out the Amalekites. And, and uh, the King Saul says, all right, I, commit, I promise to do that. And you know what he did? He didn't do it. He kept the king of Amalek alive. 
His name is Agag. In fact, keeping him alive, he, he, he also keeps some of the things that should have been burned. And so when Sam, the prophet Samuel arrives, he says, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ear? And King Saul says, I did everything that I say I would. I'm a, I'm a commitment keeper. Honest, I did everything that you said I would. And then King Sam, uh, prophet Samuel says, then what is this bleeding of sheep in my ear? What, who is this guy? Is this not the king of Amalek? Why did you despise the word of the Lord? Because you have despised the word of the Lord, the Lord rejects you as a king. He's going to tear your throne from you and give it to someone who knows his heart. That's pretty much what God said to him after King Saul did not keep his commitment to destroy the Amalekites. Are these hard examples for you to digest because it involves killing off a whole people group? All right, it's in the Bible. Look, it's in the Bible, and I think we need to process it and deal with it in a sound way. Uh, Samson was not a, he was a commitment breaker. Samson, over his life, before he was born, the Nazarite vow, the Nazarite commitment was made over his life. And some of the things that are, that are involved in the Nazarite vow is you're not supposed to drink alcohol, anything that comes from grapes. You're also supposed to not touch any dead thing. In fact, even if you're not a Nazarite, you're not supposed to t- touch any dead carcasses. Another thing was, do not put a razor to his head. Samson was a commitment breaker on every single level. You know why? Because when the anointing of the power of the Holy Spirit would come upon him, he had all this power. He would take a donkey bone and he would just slaughter thousands of Philistines. He was just powerful. And I'm not even sure. A lot of theologians will say that he was probably scrawny. That's why people will be so, so surprised at the scrawny little guy. Somebody that looks like Matthew Coe. Like somebody that's not that muscular. You know, not, not, they're not that scrawny. I guess somebody's scrawnier. Who's just a little scrawnier than that? I got nobody. Sorry, Matthew. Okay. <laughs> Samson probably looked like Matthew Coe's build. And so these Philistines are like, man, little punk. Yeah, I, I heard about you, but you ain't nothing. Coming at him with the sword and, and then Samson would just, Wah! some kung fu, like, like heavenly divine kung fu and just bah, bah, and poke him in the neck and then the, the Philistines would be dead. He'll like rip apart. He'll rip apart animals with his bare hands. He'll just rip them apart. That's crazy, right? And so Delilah comes and, and says, you know, what is your secret to your power? And Samson, like, you know, tries to, like, mislead her and just, man, I can't tell you all that, you know? But in between Delilah and Samson's death, you know what happened? Samson did not keep his commitments to the Lord. When he saw honey, a honeycomb inside of a lion's carcass, he reached into that dead carcass and he scooped out that honey and he started eating it like a big old slob. The bad thing about that was he was breaking his commitment to God to touch no unclean thing. He was supposed not to touch any dead animals. Second, he got drunk. He wasn't supposed to drink wine, but he'd get drunk. He'd party it up. But the, you see, and, and the thing was, when the moment he reached out his hand into that lion carcass, the anointing power should have left Samson a long time ago. But I believe God kept the anointing on him as an act of grace. When he got drunk on wine, God should have lifted that anointing off of him. But God still said, you know what? I'm going to be gracious to Samson. But when that last mark of his commitment, do not put a razor to his head. When that commitment was finally broken, God's like, look, you've broken every part of this covenant. And the Lord just left him. And Samson 
had his eyes gouged out because his power had left. The spirit of the Lord had left and he didn't have the power to defend himself anymore. Samson was a commitment breaker. It actually says in Malachi 1.14, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, promises it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. What Malachi 1.14 is saying is, if you promise to God one thing and you have the ability to give it to him, but you give him something blemished, something less than. God says, you just bring a curse on yourself. You need to learn how to keep your commitments and vows before the Lord. You know, and I'm going to get real practical for a second. There are three ways in, we need to, in which our generation needs to learn how to renew and keep our commitments. One is our commitment to God. Just as uh, my old roommate James here was up here, by coming out to New Philly, he was able to renew his commitment, his personal relationship with Jesus. And he was able to renew that, and now he's able to keep the commitments and walk according to the ways of this word. That's one area that our young generation, whether they grew up in church or not, they need to learn how to keep their commitment to their personal relationship with God. But another area in which young people need to learn how to keep their commitments to God in is in the marriage covenant. There are too many young people these days, even seminarians, who get married and divorced way too easily. There are people that are afraid of commitment. There are other people that run into commitment, but they don't keep that commitment. And it is a doggone shame that the divorce rates in the church are the same or if not even a little bit more than the divorce rates outside the church. This is because the young generation, they have been failing to keep their commitments and promises about marriage. Look, if you're here in our community, don't get married unless you're willing to keep your marriage commitment. And don't just nod and tell me, oh, I'm willing to keep my marriage commitment. No, you need to show that you're ready to keep that marriage commitment. That when your wife wakes up and she don't look as good as she did 10 years ago, that you are going to keep your marriage commitment. When you all have children and it changes the marriage dynamic and you're like, what's up with this? Where's our intimacy? Or you guys aren't uh, able to have physical intimacy as much. And you're just like, what's going on? No, you need to learn how to keep your commitment. Even when she's going through a rough time, even through sickness or in health, right? When you go to the wedding ceremony, what are you hearing every time you sit there as a witness to someone else's marriage? What are you sitting, what are you listening to? You're listening to vows, promises, commitments. And God says, you are to keep them, for I hate divorce. Divorce is not an option. Is it off the table? And that's got to be our attitude. Now, if you, if you are in here and you had a divorce, I think there's proper steps you can take to be forgiven of that and to be restored. I think too many people, they get divorced and they don't deal with divorce property. So that as a divorcee, you start coming to church like New Philly and you're like, oh, that girl over there. That girl, you know, Ginny, that girl, Helen, man, she's fine. 
And as a divorcee, you're like, I want to I wanna date her. What's the protocol? What do I got to do? And then I hear about your situation. Oh, you, you got divorced? Okay, that's all right. But how did you process your divorce? How have you processed that divorce before God? Because if you have not processed it, when you mar- if you try to marry one of our girls, you're going to cause her to be an adulterer. That's the plain teaching of Scripture. So there's got to be a way in which you have processed that divorce. A way in which you've been restored. So another area is in marriage and in family. We as the church, we young generation, we need to learn how to keep our commitments in marriage and in family. And third, we need to learn how to keep our commitments in the church. Can somebody say amen? amen. We need to learn how to keep the commitments we make in this house. God doesn't want a bunch of consumer Christians dating the church. Doing a one night stand with the church. Oh, I went to that revival service hosted by New Philly. And I just sensed the presence of God. And I felt like I loved everybody in that room. And I just encountered the love of God that night. Why aren't you going out to New Philly anymore? Well, you know, it's it's a one night thing, you know. That's pretty much what people say. Why aren't you committed to a local church? Well, you know, you know, I, I get my highs with God here and there. You know, I like to check out the different love motels. Come on now. Some people treat churches like love motels. You just in and you out. You just pay a little offering here, pay a little offering there, and I'm out. Let me get, let me see what I can get out of it. Let me see what kind of uh, flat screen TVs are in there. Let me see what kind of uh, good looking worship leaders are leading worship. You know, and then when the good-looking worship leader gets married, you're like, oh, let me move on to another church. (laughs) Stop dating the church. Jesus did not die on the cross so you can date the church. The Bible says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Our attitude should be the same as Christ toward the church. We need to love the church and be committed to the church. That's why James's testimony, I think, goes right along with my message today. For a lot of young people, they're afraid of commitment. Or they make a commitment, and they don't know how to keep the commitment. Great example is in James's case. He made that membership commitment, and he didn't follow through. He didn't keep the commitment. Right, James? You weren't keeping the commitment. No, he wasn't. <laughs> and so what did I do? I sat down with him one Sunday, and I said, hey, James, check this out. You made a commitment to God and you made a commitment to this community and to me as the pastor of this church. You made a commitment to these responsibilities as a member of this community. And you're not keeping it. And so you know what? This membership covenant, if it sounds like it's a burden to you rather than a blessing. So you know what? Today, I think it will be better for me to just release you and just to dissolve your membership. And you know what? James really did not know how to respond. He was just silent. I didn't know how to read him. I don't know what's going on in his heart. I, I don't know if he'll ever come back to New Philly after what I kicking him off membership. You know, you're my old roommate. How can you kick me off membership? You know, I don't know what he was thinking because he didn't show me no, no facial expression. He was just he was he was just blank. But you know what? Like a month or two later, he came up to me. He said, "You know what? That was the best thing everyone's anyone's ever done for me in my life." All my life, people would just give me, give me grace, give me a handout, give me a, a, a free to go, a 
are free to pass, free to go pass. <laughs> but you, you know what? You have really kept me accountable to the words of my mouth, the commitments that I made. And I'm, and I'm really thankful for that. No one's ever done anything for me. You know what? That's real grace. A lot of churches, they cheapen grace way too much. The grace of God has power to transform people's lives. Not to just let people slide for a lifetime. Let people slide. Let people slide. I'm dealing with all these uh, bondages in my life, but we're going to let you slide because you're a good worship leader. And I'm, I'm dealing with all of this uh, inner uh, trauma, but we're going to just let you slide because you're a great preacher. And people just slide. The grace of God just seems like a slippery slide. Slip and slide. Everybody sliding. And you know what? That kind of cheap grace, you just slide your way into destruction. Because the sinkhole gets too big, eventually it caves in, and, you, and you, you know what? You might drag your whole family down with you. But in this house, we got transforming grace, accountability grace, grace that's going to speak the truth in love. Keep your commitments to the church. You know, uh, I want to mention a, a quick verse. You know, God really loves when you keep your commitment to marriage because he actually says in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5, if a man has been recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. All the women said, you, you guys even know that verse? Do you guys even know that verse? Most of the men, you don't even know that verse, do you? All right? That's how much God loves the marriage commitment. He's like, look, that first year is such a sensitive time. So stop going on business trips. Stop saying yes to speaking engagements. Just stay home and make your wife happy. Because that's the first year in which your marriage is going to be established. There are going to be habits from that first year that's going to go on for the rest of your lifetime. If you want a healthy marriage, you need to spend, you need to invest it in that first year. That's awesome. That's God's way of saying, man, keep your marriage commitments. Keep your church commitments. You know, there are people in here, um, they make a commitment. They call, we call it a 10-year commitment. Something supernatural that God put on my heart. I shared it with the church and I said, God's going to build this house on, on 10-year commitments. Because up until three years ago, the, the environment of our church community was very transient. You know, people coming in and out all the time. People just working for one year, two years at CDI usually. CDI or SMOE, you know, and then when their program ends, they're just like, peace out. I made all the money that I need to make. And, you know, let me go back to America. Let me go back to Canada. Let me go back to Australia. Let me do something with this money. And so very transient, very temporary. Everybody was moving in and out. And the Lord said, I'm putting these great dreams on your heart, but you are not going to be able to fulfill those dreams unless you start to get 10-year commitments from the sons and daughters in your church. And so I put out that word. I said, God said he's going to build this house on 10-year commitments. And God's been speaking to you already about it. Some of you, God's already been speaking to you about it. If that's you, stand up. And you know what? That July 4th, 2010, there are about 14 people stood up. And a congregation of about maybe half of this, about 120 people, 12, 14 people stood up, and they just started crying and weeping 
And they're just like, I don't want to make a 10-year commitment to Pastor Christian. (laughs) No! Please, Lord, no! You know, whatever. They were were crying and laughing and crying and shaking. It was supernatural. I I could not produce that. It was a spirit of God moving on there. And I just said, I I bless your 10-year commitment, brother. (laughs) You know? I bless your 10-year commitment, sister. (laughs) 12, 14 people. Pray for them. And bless them. Last year, we had another surge of people that made these commitments. And right now, we have about 100 people that made 10-year commitments from our three campuses. That's significant. And Alan Hood from IHOP came in July. And when he joined us, and I shared with him that story, it just, I didn't bring it up. Like he somehow brought it out of me. And I told him the story of, we have these things, you know, it's a transient, it used to be a transient community, but God put this word on my heart to challenge people to make a 10-year commitment. And all these people made a commitment like that. And Alan Hood says, that's beautiful. With these big, what is this color? Like green eyes. I don't know, it's big eyes. It looked like my soul was naked before him. I was like, and Alan Hill was like, that's beautiful. That's something you don't hear about. You know, God loves the young people. He loves the 20-somethings. Because, and when, when the 20-somethings give up their youth to build the house of God, God doesn't take that lightly. That's beautiful. That's amazing, Christian. And I was like, thank you. Wow. Yeah, I guess it is. It is. Well, here's the thing. It's been, it's been two and a half years. It's been two and a half years. And the majority of the people, they've been having a great attitude. The majority of people having a great attitude. But there are, comes waves of attack from the enemy where people start getting shaken from their tenure commitments. Visa issues in Korea. Because most of these people are not Korean natives. We have maybe about 15 Korean natives on that list. The rest are white. We got a lot of African-Americans, African-Canadians. We got a lot of black people, what am I saying? We got some, we got some non-Koreans. We got some Kyopos. Kyopos that speak Korean and Kyopos that can't speak a lick of it. And when there are different job issues, different visa issues, they get shaken. It's not convenient to do their tenure commitment anymore. And Satan attacks and attacks and attacks and tries to get them to forfeit and abort before it's really even taken off. And my word for you is keep your commitments before God. You know, I know my message has has gotten a little long, but, you know, since it's long already, let me go a little longer. (laughs) I'll wrap up real quick. Let me just tell you, let me just tell you a quick story. You know, we're, we're uh, open to the Holy Spirit church. Some people like to call that charismatic. You can call it whatever you want. I don't think we're necessarily that charismatic, but we're very open. We embrace the move of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, and one thing you will notice in the Spirit-filled movement is a lot of people make commitments in the Spirit-filled movement because it's, it's a passionate movement. It's one where the presence of God comes, and then you hear the audible voice of God. The prophecies go out, and people make commitments, But you know one thing I noticed in the charismatic movement? It's also the movement where not only the most commitments are made, it's where the most commitments are broken. 
And you know what I'm sick and tired of hearing? Is young people blaming the Holy Spirit when they're breaking their commitments. When they blame the Holy Spirit. I got young men that will come up to me and say, I want, I want to court one of the beautiful sisters at your church. All right, young man, do you have any money? Yeah, I got this money saved up. Okay, are you emotionally stable? Yeah, I'm emotionally stable. Are you spiritually good? Yeah, I'm spiritually good. All right, I'm going to give you my blessing. Go ahead. She might say no. I know how she is. She might say no. But if she says yes, and then you have my blessing, go out on first date with her. Young men will go through that. They will go through our entire dating protocol, get to the point of engagement. And get the girl to think and make herself vulnerable and be committed all into the relationship. Get her to think she's going to go on toward marriage and tell her family all of that. And then the young man simply one day says, you know what? I don't feel the same way I have those feelings. I don't feel the same way anymore. So you know what? I'm going to break this commitment. Hey, that's, uh, that's not fair. Why did you proceed? Why did you push with your prophecies, with your prophetic dreams? Why did you push so hard then? To put one of our, one of our spiritual daughters in, in, in jeopardy and vulnerability like this? Why'd you push so hard? I don't, I don't know. I think the you know, Holy Spirit led me that way. And now the Holy Spirit is leading me out. I just feel the spirit of smack coming on me. <laughs> Look left. Because there's something coming at you from that side. You know, and as a pastor... That infuriates me. You know what I would rather hear from a young man like that? You know, I really had the hots for her. I was really infatuated with her. But, you know, over the course, course of the last three months, you know, I kind of rushed things. So I'm, I'm, I take a responsibility. I was wrong. I rushed things. And in rushing things, you know what, in the fourth month, I realized that, you know, she's, we're not compatible in these areas. And, you know what, I, I, you know, I made a mistake. You know, that would be refreshing. Oh, you made a mistake. I'm still going to smack you. <laughs> How are you going to lead this girl on to this point and bail out? No, you marry her. No, that's what I want to say. That's what I want to say. But you know what? If they say I made a mistake, you know what? At least that's refreshing. But do not put it on the Holy Spirit. Don't blame it on the Holy Spirit. Even the 10-year commitment. Even the leadership covenant people. People who make covenants to join leadership with our church, there are people that was, I will challenge them and say, hey, young man, you should join the leadership of our church. And that person will say, well, let me pray about it. They come back the next week. Well, Holy Spirit told me during the week that not to join the leadership of the church. All right, that's your prerogative. I think you should, but you know what? You know, if you discern the voice of the Lord, and he said, no, then forget about it. Forget it. And then, you know, half a year later, they come up to me. I want to join the leadership covenant of the church now. I want to join leadership because the Holy Spirit has led me. All right, okay. All right, we'll train you. Go ahead, go through the training. Do all your homework. And usually those people, they struggle with homework because they don't know how to keep their commitment. They don't come out to the prayer meetings because they don't know how to keep their commitment. So you see all the red flags, but we, you know, we show them grace. Yeah, come on, you can do it. You can do it. Right? And then they commit and they become a leader of the church. One year later, five months later, two months later, uh, Holy Spirit is leading me to come off leadership. Now, I'm open to that. Holy Spirit could certainly do that. But what I really see in that young man or woman is actually an inability to keep promises. That's a commitment breaker. And what I think the Holy Spirit is saying to you, young man, is learn how to keep your commitment. Stay on leadership. But the Holy Spirit, I'm going to disobey the Holy Spirit. Disobey the Holy Spirit. 
I, that's what I want to say. I don't say that. But, you know, in the charismatic movement, man, too many people. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. Own up. Just like David said to Solomon, be a man. Man up. Keep your commitments, especially the men. So what if you were a player in the past and that's the pattern you've known? That's behind you now. That's, you gotta put that to death. When you come in and you start living a life of commitment to God and you wanna keep your commitment of marriage in the future, you got to learn how to keep your commitments to the church. You got to learn how to keep your promises right here in this community. So I'm letting my heart all out. I'm just letting it all, I'm letting it all out right now. I'm letting it all, I'm just letting my heart out. You know what I'm saying? But you know what? You're not alone in the struggle is what I'm saying. There's a lot of people in our generation that are struggling this way. But today I'm saying we're not going to excuse it anymore. We're going to challenge you and keep you accountable to start rising up and keep your vows, keep your oaths before the Lord. And let me tell you about one Commitment keeper that I failed to mention. And you know his name. Jesus. You know that God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, they talked about the cross even before the Romans found out about the method. The most agonizing, humiliating, public punishment and death that man has ever created. I think to this day, it stands the cross, the Roman cross. You know, a lot of time people were crucified, when they were crucified, they were crucified naked. Now, to keep the movie ratings at R, you know, they, they cover up, a lot of times, they cover up the people that get crucified. But a lot of times they were crucified naked. They weren't always crucified with a little, with a little bonsa on. Nah. It was humiliating. It was excruciating. In fact, it wasn't even meant to kill you. The cross is not meant to kill you, by the way. This is meant to torture you. Humiliate you. It was a preventative thing. That's why they put it out publicly. A lot of times the cross didn't kill you. So that's, that's why they had to break your legs. So that you, you, you suffocate to death. Before the Romans ever discovered the cross, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, got together and said, look at this. Man has sinned. And we need to provide a way for him to be restored into relationship again with us. The original order of creation was to have fellowship with a loving God. That's been broken. And now we need to Go out on a mission in a way that I can forgive sin without cheapening grace. I can have a justification. I can have a righteous character and still forgive sin. What will be the way we accomplish this? And the triune God came up with the Roman cross before the Romans ever discovered it. And Jesus said, I commit. I will go to the cross. And I will pay for the sins. I will be the lamb. The sacrificial lamb that the Jews constantly sacrifice in that temple. I'm going to be that lamb. 
so that my blood will be an atoning sacrifice for man's sin. So Father and Holy Spirit said very well. And when time, the fullness of time came, Jesus came to the earth as a baby. And when he grew up and at the age of 30, the Bible says that Jesus started his public ministry. And on the third year, he began to make his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. Jesus made a commitment in eternity past. And 2,000 years ago, he kept that commitment. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve of his torture and death, Jesus just agonized. He prayed a prayer that if you misinterpret it, it looks like Jesus has given up. If you misinterpret his prayer, if you don't know good theology, you might just think Jesus is like, can you bail me out? Lord, let this cup pass from me, Father. Lord, please, let this cup pass from me. But not my will. Yours be done. You know what I think that is? That's not an expression of Jesus' desire to abort the mission. That is a manifestation of the fact that when Jesus became a man, he felt every emotion and agony of a man that's about to know he's about to get tortured on a cross. That prayer to me, it shows me that he wasn't some ghost that only felt 20% of the pain. Jesus was right there in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he agonized in that garden. And he said, this is real. This is going to be so painful. But Father, not my will. Yours be done. I've made a commitment. And I'm going to keep it. And Jesus finished it. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. My commitment is finished. And he breathed his last. And the death of Jesus has paid for the sins of us all. And all those who trust him, their sins will not be counted against them. The most amazing commitment keeper that I know of is Jesus our Lord. And I really believe that we ought to follow, learn how to follow in his footsteps. Don't misinterpret Deuteronomy as a text that's telling you to avoid commitment. Don't twist what Jesus said. God wants us to make good commitments, good vows, and keep them. And you know what? You might feel like, I'm going to fail. I failed to keep my promises in the past. That's why I'm afraid to make it now. Well, if you feel like you can't be faithful, find your source of grace and inspiration, not in your past, but on the cross. Because on the cross, you see the greatest demonstration of faithfulness. And that grace demonstrated on the cross not only inspires us, it enables us to keep all the commitments we make before God. If you're married in here, next time you wanna, you're tempted to divorce, think about the cross. You think the pain of your marriage is tough? 
Think about the cross. The cross is there. Enables you. You keep your promises. You keep your commitments until the day of Christ Jesus' return. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the gift of everlasting life that we have in your son, Jesus. And Lord, my, my preaching today, I just pray that not only will it be a diagnosis of what our generation struggles with, but it will be the very word that you breathe upon to enable them to live a life a life of integrity, a life in which they keep their promises and keep their commitments to God and to their spouses, to their children, to the church community, to their pastor. Lord, teach us your ways, God. Teach us your ways. Right now, I break off every deception of the enemy over the minds and hearts of the young people in this room who believe that I am not a promise keeper. I'm not a commitment keeper. I break commitments all the time. Right now, I break that deception off of their hearts and minds. Right now, in the name of Jesus, that is a lie. Because Jesus is inside of you, the hope of glory. You can keep promises. You can keep commitments, even when it's difficult, even when it's painful, even when it's inconvenient. The grace of God abounds for you. So you can honor the commitments you make before him. I pray right now for every person that has been afraid of marriage because of their parents' divorce or a broken family. I pray right now that that fear will break off in Jesus' name. Married men that are afraid to start their own family because they didn't have a strong father figure in their life. I break off that fear in the name of Jesus. Even though our biological father might have been absent, we have a father in heaven who has demonstrated his great love for us. We have every, every ability to be good fathers and mothers because we know God our everlasting Father. Father, there are in here, right now what I see is businesses. Businesses that are, that you're going to inspire, you're going to start up. But my prayer is that those businesses will not be aborted in the stages of infancy. Those businesses will not be given up on just because things are not moving forward the way that they had hoped. I pray for perseverance. The grace to persevere so that young people can keep their commitments and push through and act in faith and know that God, your faithfulness, will surely be proven in their lives. They will see breakthroughs. They will see divine appointments. They will see favor upon favor. Nothing will be difficult for the heart of the people of God because the favor of God is upon them. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.